0: ah, perfect, alright so the commandment is you shall have no other gods before me and it can either mean there are no other gods or it can mean do not worship those other gods and we can say that the first um, statement is monotheism who knows what monotheism is, quick definition Right. There's only one God, right? So, there are no other gods, just one, right? Or, it could just... And and then the second statement is what's called henotheism. Does anyone know what henotheism is? Ah, here's some advanced vocabulary test. Henotheism. There is more than one God, but you yourself are to worship only. Yeah, or uh, maybe a better way to put it is, um, there are many gods but there's one chief god worship him um, above the others right? so if I could graphically display it so here's God and here's the little gods lesser gods and they're not real there are, there's nobody else God is the only game in town henatheism is there are many gods and there's a chief god a god over all the rest, and uh, for example, Greek mythology is henotheism. Who's the chief god in, in Greek mythology? Zeus, Zeus right? All oh, you guys all know. So, is this like is, is the God of the Bible like Zeus? And he's just stronger and badder and tougher than the other gods, or is the God of the Bible monotheistic in that he is alone God, right? Because the, the 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 commandment is a little bit ambiguous. And the first point I want to make is, um, the Bible is monotheistic, okay? This is a statement that there are no other gods. All the other gods, so-called gods, are idols with no real substance or reality. And you can see that so clearly in Psalm 115. Psalm 115 mocks the other gods. Uh, Let's have um, Joe read it for us, and I'll interrupt you. Why should the nations say, "Where is their God?" Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Yeah, let me let me interrupt you there. So the nations are saying, "Where's your God? We can't see Him." And the answer is, "Well, our God is in the heavens. Heavens is not necessarily a, 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 a geographic location, but heavens is sort of the spiritual realm, right? His His court, and and it says what He does all that He pleases, right? So our God is above creation. And he can exert himself; he can do whatever he wants because he's the creator. He made all things, right? Um, and then go to keep reading. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Yeah. So, so then you then he compares the other gods, right? The other gods are part of creation, right? They're made of elements, precious elements, gold and silver. And they're actually forged from human hands. So how can this be a real God if he's part of creation, right? And keep reading. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Right, so isn't that very clear, right? These other so-called gods are not real. They have no agency they have no power they haven't they're nothing they're just the work of human hands paul affirms the same thing in first in corinthians right he says that an idol is not a real thing for there's only one god the creator of all things where are we hands, and can you be that for us we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no god but one it has no real existence there's there's you can sit on the table, sit on the table. all right so is that clear <laughs> Everyone understand Christianity is monotheistic, right? Ah. But. So, let me just dwell on this. And now, let me say that there are, in fact, other gods. Um, listen to Psalm 95. Where are we? 18. Can you read that? For the Lord is a God uh, Let me just interrupt. Lord is all caps. What does that mean? <clears throat> no way. That no way. Good. It's the covenant name of God. So, go ahead. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Yeah, he says. The, the psalmist says, "God is above all gods." So what is that? That's a comparative statement. If I said to um, if I if I said to uh, somebody, uh, "I'm taller than you," I'm comparing myself to them, and I'm saying I'm taller. Um, but I'm acknowledging that there's somebody else in the room, right? I wouldn't say, "I'm taller than you," in an empty room. I would just say, I'm here. (laughs) Or it's me. Right? But to say I'm taller or I'm above implies that there's something else there. Right? So the psalmist acknowledges there are other gods. To which, it's beginning to sound a lot like henotheism, right? Keep keep reading. Are we still with you? Psalm 97. All right. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. There you go. Right? This is very strange. So what is the answer to this? I just chose two. We could have read like 20 (laughs) verses. So while these gods are not real, the Bible nevertheless speaks of them as rivals. Now, they're not real. They don't have any substance. But nevertheless, they're rivals not to God in power or reality or in existence, they're rivals to God in the affections of his people. Okay, so they're rivals in affections. This is why the commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. This language of before me is talking about the presence of God. And therefore, when God's people go before his presence, they are not to bring along with them other gods. And therefore, what God is saying is he demands exclusive worship. Right? Worship me alone. Um, give, Give your devotion and attention to me alone. And therefore, what is the answer to the question when I said, is it saying there are no other gods, or is it saying do not worship these other gods? The answer is? It's both. He's saying both, and I think Psalm, uh, no, First Corinthians six, not First Corinthians, First Chronicles. We almost never read from Chronicles, so this is a moment. First Chronicles 6, six sixteen, um, I think, shows this balance beautifully. So where are we, Tracy? Can you read that for us? I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah. Sing to the Lord all the earth. <clears throat> Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in awe above all gods. So, so that first underlying statement, he is to be held in awe above all gods. So here we again have, there's rivals, and God is above those rivals. He is He demands your worship above them. But then look at verse 26. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Yeah, so these other gods, at the same time, they're not real. They're part of creation. God is the true God. Do you mind? Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. All right, so any questions? There. All right, so let's move on. So let's focus on this aspect there. Do not worship those other gods. I think this is where the real bite and the real relevance and the real applica- applicational value of this commandment has for us. So, Uh, number three, so the first commandment tells us that there are other gods. How are they gods? Where do they get their power? And the answer is that these other gods are not actual gods, but they are functional gods. (coughs) They're functional gods. And what I mean by that is um, they act as God. So, you know, we think, okay, you should have no other gods before me. Don't have idols. We think, oh, okay, you know, don't have figurines. Some of us, uh, 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 in for example, in the Buddhistic religious culture or heritage, they have idols, right? So we say, oh, that's what it means. No, you know, don't, no statue of Buddha in your house, or 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 um, a statue of some god. And we think maybe, oh, you know, uh, the ancients. That's what they believed. They were so primitive. But we need to really give them a lot of credit because. They weren't just saying, "Oh, it's you know, the statue has something." They were attributing, um, they were naming a god to something that had a hold in their hearts and, and in their hopes, right? Which is um, things like, uh, where where am I? Or oh, things like money, sex, and power. And so, right? Because the Greeks had a, a god of sex or love. What was the Greek god of love in the Greek mythology? Venus? No. Oh. Venus, yes, that would be the Roman name for it, Aphrodite. Um, so there were all kinds of gods, and they were just much more honest about it than us. But so we do the exact same thing, right? We give them love, we give them worship, we give them hope. And so here, and so here's the question, right? Whatever you make central in your life, whatever you say, this is the most important thing. This is the ultimate thing. That. That is your God. That is your idol. Right? And that's what this commandment is asking us to meditate on. Who who are the rivals in your life? Who are the little gods that are competing for your attention and your adoration and your hopes? And the answer, if we think about it, if we're honest with ourselves, the answer is that all of us, every single person in this room, including myself, have idols in our lives. right? And this idol gives us significance, it gives us life, joy, and this is the rival to God in our lives. So that when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, we violate this commandment. We break this commandment when we make something else more ultimate, more central in our lives. So, let me make this more concrete. Um, What's an example? So, Jesus gives us an example of money. So, let's read Matthew chapter 6. Where are we? Uh, Eric, can you read that for us? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Yeah, let me just I I think, uh, every time I read this, I'm always impressed by how reasonable Jesus is here. Because he says... You can't have two masters, right? Because what is a master? A master has the authority and the power to command everything in your life. You can't have two of these things, right? Because what if their orders conflict? One master says, go here. The other master says, go there. You have to disobey or, or, or um, ignore one of the masters. And so Jesus says, it is impossible to have two masters. You can't have two ultimate things in your life. You can't have two central things. You can only have one central thing, right? And so then, therefore, what, this is what does is, what is he say in the underline? Keep reading. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I think Jesus gives us a wonderful test. How do we know that we have these rivals in our lives, these lesser gods that command our attention? And one test he gives us is strong emotions. And the particular one he gives us for money is anxiety. Now, you should feel some degree of normal anxiety when you don't have money, right? You shouldn't be like, ah, what a, you know, what am, how do am I pay rent? Ah, you know, <laughs> that's, that's not correct. That's not prudent and wise. So you should say, hmm, what am I going to do? But if you're overcome with worry, if you're debilitated with anxiety, or if you have lots of money, if you're inordinately happy. Or if you lose your money, you're just devastated. If you have emotions that are beyond what you should feel, that's because you're in the presence of your God. Right? God demands your ultimate feelings and ultimate um, emotions, and so that's a test. And that's why Jesus calls... Uh, money here he doesn't actually say money there's a Greek word for money he doesn't use it he uses um, well obviously he's not speaking Greek but in the Greek translation there's just a normal word for money but it isn't there it's an Aramaic word mammon right so he uses the name of a god to talk about money so money one of the rivals is money for many of us and money is a god substitute If you have a lot of money, you don't need God. Because money can be for us what only God should be. For example, money can give you security. If you have a huge savings account, and you look at that savings account, and it's just this enormous sum of money, what do you feel? You feel safe. Uh, This is particularly vivid for me, because for a huge chunk of my life, Christine and I, we were like so grindingly poor, that we would we i remember once we got a park i'm uh, uh, um, sorry uh, a moving ticket a moving violation for for $400 that was going to break us so we were like devastated <laughs> we were like, crying right because we felt so exposed but if you have a lot of money you don't need to feel that but that is an illegitimate <coughs> attribution to money because money is not security if you have a lot of money can it save you from cancer can it save you from family Breakdown Can it save you from heartache and, and disasters in your life? It cannot. Money is just money. It doesn't make you safe. Only God can give you safety and security. Or money can be for you um, significance. Right? Um, why do people buy luxury goods? A lot of economists are really puzzled by this. Right? Because they say um, a luxury good has only marginal value over, in terms of the pure mechanics over just the regular brand so why, why do people buy something that's twice or three times or four times the, the value of the regular brand, it's because you're trying to project status, you're trying to tell people, I'm successful look look at how much money I have um, and so we use money to project our significance uh, the total sum of your all your money, what is that called? like everything that you own net worth, net worth why do we use that language? It's my net worth. Right? Um, or money can be for you joy. You can, first of all, for a lot of people, just having a lot of money makes you happy or you can use money to buy happiness. Right? Go on vacations and and enjoy good things in life. And all, and all of these things, you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping money. And we can do that with all of the other gods in our life. We can do that with romance. <laughs> you can do this with um, friendships, with career, with artistic expression. Whatever it is, something holds us and, and is central to us in a way that is illegitimate, that is wrong. Yes? I just wanted to point out other parts of our that are influenced by this, like your payday, or thank God it's Friday, or windfall. Right. Yeah, um, I've actually been toying with this, um, and hold me to it. I'm going to do a four-part series on money um, soon. In 2014, I promise, right? But um, yeah, there's something so deep about our relationship with money that it's it's so profound. It has such a hold on us. Um, And in many ways, it is perhaps... The most prolific idol. The funny thing is, almost er- no one thinks they're greedy, which makes it all the more dangerous, right? No, I 100% agree. Money is a god substitute. You either you either have God, or you have lots of money. You have lots <clears throat> of money, you don't need God because money can do for you all the things that you look to God for. Oh, well, in a pretend, false way, right? All right, so let's go on. Um, So so the point I want to make here is, you know, I think a lot of times we look at the Ten Commandments and we say, all right, you know, it's those other commandments down the line. I'm doing good, I'm doing good. And then when we get to Commandment 8, 7, then I'm starting to break them. Wrong. We're breaking Commandment number one. Commandment number one is God is saying, put me first, put me central, and we break it. And we don't just break it once in our life, we break it all the time. We break it every day, every hour, every moment that we breathe, we're breaking this commandment. All right, so let's go on. <clears throat> so then what is positively commanded in the first commandment? So the, uh, uh, the 10 commandments not only prohibit things,
1: almost all of them are
0: expressed in terms of don't do this, but implicit in that is also do this, the flip side. right? You need to do something, don't do something. So then what is that? Uh, where are we? Um, uh, Catherine, can you read Deuteronomy 6? This should be familiar to you guys. we looked at this two weeks ago. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Yeah, so what does this tell us? It says that to obey the first commandment, we must love God with all of our being, with everything that we have. We have to have a passion for God. We have to be sold out for God. And nothing less than that <coughs> is breaking the first commandment. The first commandment is not just simply saying abstain from worshipping idols. It is also affirmatively saying um, love God with everything that you have cherish and worship him and otherwise you have broken the first commandment. And so we, break the com- we can break this commandment in two ways by commission and omission. By commission by having other idols other rivals before God and by omission, by not loving God with, every, with all of our strength. And how do we love God? There are two ways. So let me, let me write this down. How do we love God? Two ways. With our happiness and with our sadness. I love that. It sounds sound so deep. All right. <laughs> um, so first, how do we love God with our happiness? Psalm 37. Dom, um, can you read? Uh, Yeah. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the, de- the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the way, and your justice as a new day. Be still before the Lord, and wait be patiently for him. Yeah, so how do we love him? How do we obey the first commandment? We need to make God the source of our happiness. I think happiness is so profound, because happiness is a test of what is ultimate in your life. So much of what we do makes us unhappy. Why do we do it? Because we're we're after something else. We're after we're willing to go through the valley of unhappiness to get to the mountain of happiness, right? Like I hate working out. <laughs> um, I I don't know why people. There are people who enjoy working out for its own sake. I find them to be freaks of nature <laughs> because working out is like pain, right? It's like I feel like you might as well just say punch yourself ten times. Okay, You've done done your workout. But I work out, or I try to work out. Why? Because I want to be healthy. I want to be there for my children. I don't don't want to be in chronic pain. I I, I suffer from some chronic pain. So, I'm willing to endure unhappiness for the sake of my ultimate goal, which will make me happy, which is health. And what this is saying is don't make God a means to an end to which you're willing to endure to get to what you really want, but rather make God what you really want. He's the reason why you do whatever you're doing. He's the source of your happiness, right? And so the question this this, this should, we should ask is, do you love God for himself, or do you love him for something else? Do you know what I mean? Are you using him? And so the question is motive. Um... Imagine that uh, there's a young man working at a company. He's very ambitious. He sees the daughter of the CEO, and he sidles up to her, and he starts to turn on his charm, and he wants to date her. What is his motive? His motive, let's say, let's say we, we can peer into his heart, into his mind. His motive is to advance in the company and to catch the attention of the CEO. So he says to himself, I will use this girl To get good with the CEO, right? God says, "Don't do that to me." Or imagine a man who dates a a girl who is poor, who has, who can do nothing for him, but he loves her. She brings him delight. She brings him joy. For itself, right? She just, he just loves to spend time with her. That God says, "Do that to me," right? Don't just use me um, 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 to get what you really want, but Get me, right? Make me your happiness. Um, and so I think a lot of times, we don't make God our happiness. Something else is making us happy. And we're willing to go to church. We're, re- we're willing to go through the religious motions because we think deep down inside there's maybe a contractual relationship. God, if I do these things for you, you will get me what will make me happy. What is that thing? Maybe romance? Maybe romance? maybe a family, maybe a good career. Whatever it is, you're willing to endure the unhappy times or kind of the drudgery of being with God so you can get to what you really want, right? It's like the man who's dating the CEO's daughter. He finds her a terrible bore, and he does not like her at all, but he holds her hand and he attends parties with her simply so that his real goal is to advance in the company. 1 uh, Corinthians 10, where are we? Um, handsome can you read that? Or do you have a paper? Yeah. So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Yeah, do it all for the glory of God. Um, all your motivations, everything in life, should have God as the end goal. So that um, this first commandment permeates everything that you do, right? Make us essential, not secondary. So that's the first thing. <coughs> the second thing is sadness. Uh, Habakkuk 3. Um, can I have uh, Christine read it, please. Yeah, so consider this, right? Can you delight in God when all else fails? In the midst of pain and failure. And if you cannot, right, if, if tragedy strikes you, if you lose your health, or you lose your net worth, or um, you lose your beauty, or um, you break up, or somebody dies in your life. Now, these things are good things. So you should be sad. Don't ever say, don't ever think that I'm saying, you know, somebody dies, you should say. That's terrible. You should weep. But do you weep inconsolably? Is there no solace? Is there no deeper joy? If God says, I'm gonna take away everything in your life except me, can you still be happy? And if your response to God is no, you've taken away everything, I'm inconsolable, I'm going to slip, I'm going to fall into deep despair, then what you're really saying is, all along, God was not central. It was whatever it is that you lost. That was your true God. That was your functional God. That was what was making you happy. And now that you've lost your true God, you're devastated, right? Um, Imagine um, imagine a, a, a man who's very wealthy, He marries a a woman and and one day he comes home and he says to his wife, his new wife, Darling, I'm really sorry to report that I made some really bad investments and in a single day my entire fortune has been wiped out. I'm penniless. So that's the bad news. But the good news is we still have each other. And his wife says to him, I don't think this is going to work out and she leaves him. What does that mean? It means that all along, she didn't marry him for him. She married him for his money. Right? And so when God brings tragedy into our lives, when um, something that is good is taken away from us, and we say to God, I cannot be happy anymore, then what we're really saying to God is, I don't think this is going to work out. Because I was with you all along for that thing for my career, for my health, for romance. Does that make sense? So how do we love God? We, we love God by making him the ultimate source of our happiness. And we love God even when things are taken away from us. There is a deep joy that abides, even in the midst of loss and sorrow, right? Any questions or comments on that? So I think this commandment, as I've studied it and meditated on it, has, I think, enormous value. I remember when I was a kid and we were going through the Ten Commandments, I would just skip over the first commandment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are no other gods. God, I'm a monotheist. <laughs> um, no, this commandment is so profound. It's so deep. You can meditate on it for the rest of your life and you will never get to the bottom of it. Because it has to do with your heart motivations it has to do with what is ultimate in your life and you can probe this commandment and examine your life every day, every moment and the purpose of this commandment first and foremost is to kill you is to slay your righteousness so that you cannot say in any way I have, I'm have, i a good person you recognize that you break this commandment every moment and therefore you, you need Christ alright so let's go on to the next point um, the other side of the page, number five, um, idolatry is, in the end, spiritual adultery. It is a deep betrayal. So, Grace, can you read uh, Jeremiah 3? Have you seen what she did that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there the Lord? Yeah, so let me just stop you there. <coughs> every high hill, every under every green tree, what is Jeremiah talking about? He's talking about idols, right? This is where you would place idols and altars. And so God's people are going there to worship these idols, right, and playing the horror. Verse 7. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. For all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. Because she took her of lightly, she polluted the lamb, committing adultery with stone. <clears throat> I think this is um, really <clears throat> arresting and really strong language. And in fact, the Bible uses it all the time which is that when we worship these rival gods, when we worship idols, we're actually playing the whore. And what does that mean? God is evoking a marriage metaphor. Right? He's saying, you are my spouse. And when you love these other rival gods, you are committing adultery, spiritual adultery. And I think when God uses that language of adultery, we get a glimpse into uh, the pain that we cause him. Right, because imagine now who who here is married? Not too many people. Um, so I'm going to ask you guys to imagine it. Imagine that you're married, right, and you love your spouse, and then imagine one day, and I'm sorry to evoke such a um, uh, intense imagery, but imagine one day you catch your spouse in bed with another person. <clears throat> I can imagine it. And if that were to happen, it would be the most searing pain. It would kill me. And God says, when you understand that, now you understand me. Do you understand what you're doing to me when you commit spiritual adultery, when um, you worship, when you go to money, when you go to romance, or you go to career, and you love these false gods, and you, and you give your hopes and attention, and adoration to these things, God says, you're cheating on me. And I think when we understand um, the, the first commandment in the language of adultery, we understand how heinous our sin is. I think a lot of times, as Christians, we sort of treat sin lightly. We think of the commandments as rules, and God is sort of like the divine enforcer, And when we break the rule, we have to deal with the legal consequences, right? So that, you know, God is sort of saying, don't cross this line. And then when you cross the line, he's there. Ah, you broke a rule. Infraction. And therefore, punishment, consequences to that infraction. Here's your ticket. Here's your punishment. That's not the way God thinks of it. That's not the language of the Bible. God thinks of it as a betrayal of a relationship. That's what breaking the commandment is. It's adultery. <clears throat> and when we understand it in those terms, now we understand. Do you understand? This is the heinousness of sin. And therefore, it makes salvation all the greater and deeper and sweeter, right? Because he forgives our um, our adultery, right? And that leads me to the next point, gospel hope. I don't want to leave you guys in despair, hanging your head. <laughs> thinking about playing the whore. Um, so, one of the most shocking passages is Hosea chapter 3. Um, Hosea chapter 3 is maybe, Hosea chapter 3 verse 1, um, I've heard from people, this is the greatest verse in the Bible, right? You know, everyone says, oh, this is the greatest verse. No, this is the, To say that Hosea chapter 3 verse 1 is the greatest verse in the Bible... I think is actually arguably true, right? What is Hosea 3.1 saying? And let me set up the context. It's a story of Hosea and Gomer, right? Um, Hosea is a prophet. God tells him to marry Gomer. And then Gomer commits a series of adulteries against him. And then one day, she leaves him for another man. And then this is what God says to Hosea. Where are we? Uh, Louis, can you read that for us? The Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved. As the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins yeah so what is he saying? God is saying to Hosea go back and get Gomer, bring her back home love her you know rescue her, reconcile with her and what God is saying to us is he's giving us a picture of the gospel So that's what Jesus Christ came to do he came to get his wayward spouse, his adultering um, spouse, and to bring us back. And that's the gospel. And, um, and I think uh, that's the power of this first commandment, is that um, it shows us how amazing God's grace is. Because if your spouse cheated on you, your, everything in your body would scream, Divorce. Everything or if you are dating somebody and your 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 romantic partner you you catch them in the arms of somebody else, what would you say? It's over. Right? Because of the pain. Not as a punishment, but because of the pain, right? You you can't I can't be with you. You've betrayed me and hurt me. But God says to us, I'm gonna come after you and rescue you and bring you back to me. And so that's the gospel, and so we are spiritual adulterers who've been loved by Christ. So that's the first lesson. That's the first word. Um, any questions or comments? Or when I look at myself, I still see an adulterer. I still am enslaved by this text. Yeah, and I want to be a follower. I want to be transformed. I want to be like Jesus. But yeah. I'm not. Yeah. How do I deal with that myself? So. so we talked about this in the introduction, right? Which is the commandments, um, all the commandments <coughs> have two purposes, dual purposes. First, it's supposed to show you that you cannot obey. So it's supposed to kill you. It's supposed to condemn you so that it drives you to Christ and it, dri- it, it, um, it drives you to a deeper appreciation of grace. But then the second thing is, the, the laws teach us how to love God, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. And so the second thing is, it does is, because out of a life that has been rescued and loved and and, and a life that's gospel, so now we want to obey him by the power of the Spirit, right? So when we know, like, if if, if you should ever marry and your spouse catches you in the arms of another woman and she forgives you, And she loves you, and brings you back, and takes you back. That kind of forgiveness and love will make you want to love her back, right? It would make you want to be faithful to her, um, out of gratitude, out of just adoration of her, of her love and her beauty, right? In doing that to you, and so that's what this commandment is supposed to drive us to do, right? Is to make us want to love God. And to kill all our all our rivals, all the rivals to him, and to not worship idols, but to be devoted to him. Does that answer your but question? Then you discover six <laughs> months later there's another girl. <laughs> so it goes <laughs> back and forth, yeah. So you know, it's, so it's not like these concrete steps, right? It's not like six months <clears throat> be slave by the commandment, <laughs> twenty years obey the commandment. It's going back and forth, back and forth, simultaneously, all the time, right? you are both guilty of the commandment and you seek to obey the commandment. That is your entire life. You will never get away from breaking this commandment. You'll never say, my goal is not to break this commandment. Well, yes and no, right? Um, You will always be a sinner, saved by grace. Um, And that's actually good. Actually, in many ways, it's not like, aha, I did it again. It's more like, I didn't know. I thought I was devoted to God, but now I know. Right? I think this is where tragedies and loss is a is a wonderful gift from God, because God is saying to you, you know, you, you, you're saying, you know, money doesn't have a hold on my life, and God says, okay, let me take it away from you. And then you and then you're devastated, and then you're inconsolable. You can't sleep at night. You're stressed out of your mind. And then God is saying, money was your God, so. I think a lot of times throughout, throughout our life, we discover, right, we, we, we kill this idol. You say, ah, it doesn't have a hold on us. But there are ones lurking. I, I love the way John Calvin puts it, right? The heart is an <coughs> idol. But I think another way to put it is idols are like cockroaches, right? They're just, they're just hidden. They're scampering everywhere. And the way you discover cockroaches is you don't just say, cockroaches, where are you? You have to go into your kitchen late at night, switch on the lights, surprise the cockroaches. Aha, you are there all along. That's what happens in your life, right? Cockroaches, um, you have to surprise your cockroaches. (laughs) (laughs) You have to surprise your idols. And the way you surprise them is through some sort of stressor in your life, right? Like, number one stressor is children. (laughs) Like, you have this margin in your life. And you're like cool and suave and, and 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 put together, but then children shrink the margin to to a paper thin level, and suddenly you're irritable all the time. You're stressed. You're an- anything any hair trigger anger. What is going on, right? Because the margin's been shrunk, and now your true idols are exposed. I'm pissed at Christina all the time and my kids all the time because they're taking away my reading time. <laughs> <laughs> because so much of my happiness <coughs> and so much of my significance and identity is that I get to read right? um, and so yeah it's not like I, it's yes you fall into the old sins again but I think so much of the Christian life is you discover the idols that were there all along you just didn't know that's a great comment do you have any follow up statement or anybody else? I got a question. Yes. So I know it's more like on the marriage part of things. So I know I guess you know I was You talking, think about marriage, right? Yeah, 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 I'm thinking about marriage, right? I'm thinking about marriage. No, um so I mean well, like when I was younger it's not like, oh, so one of the few reasons why you could get divorced is if somebody like uh like um is uh teaching on Facebook or whatever. But then like, I understand, like, so where does that balance come in? Like, is that okay then? Or is it like, I know, I know. It's, it's so, so what the Bible says about <clears throat> infidelity is that is absolutely grounds for divorce. Mm. Because if someone is trampling on you and abusing you, um, then um, you don't have to, uh, uh, you don't say, keep doing it. <clears throat> yeah. Right? Um, so that is absolutely grounds for divorce. But the Bible, at the same time, encourages you um asks you to extend the heart of forgiveness, even to that sin, even to that violation. And so if if a married couple came to me and and said, there's been infidelity, I would encourage them to reconcile and to forgive each other because that is the gospel. That's gospel reenactment. Um, um, Because God does that to us. But if the pain is too severe, it's too great, too traumatic, um, I would not blame anyone for seeking divorce um, in the face of infidelity. Yeah, well, well, well that, that's a whole other can of worms. The underlying reason for that is that even the purpose of divorce is to a reconciliation. Mm, yeah, that's a good... I I didn't think of it that way, yes. The goal is always reconciliation. Right. The yeah. purpose is not to marry another person. Yeah. So we can think of adultery as de facto adult, uh, de facto divorce, right? And that you're just legally recognizing what has already happened. I guess they see he talks about divorce, right? I don't want to usurp the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So we'll leave it at that. I forget who's teaching it. Harry, are you teaching that one? No? <laughs> Bring your questions to Wade. Get them, get them. <laughs> All right, let me pray, um, and we'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Uh, for reminding us how much you love us in Christ, that you took us, you, you brought us back to yourself, even though we were the unfaithful spouse. And now, in light of this, of, of such gospel love, may we um, live lives that are wholly devoted to you. Um, help us, drive us to love you with everything that we have, all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. To love you with our happiness to love you even in the midst of, of loss and tragedy. We pray all this in Christ's name.